0: Welcome to Conversations with Karalia, where we take a nuanced deep dive into all things related to spirituality, sexuality, power, and awakening. My name is Karalia, and I'm your host for this journey. I invite you to relax back, open up, and get curious. Don't forget to subscribe, like, And share the love. Are you ready to realize the self? To resolve your shirt? To rejoice in daily life? Join Caralia's community via her online platform, The Toolbox. Get ready for a paradigm shift in how you experience yourself and your reality. The Toolbox, where you'll find everything you need for the spiritual path, view teachings, practices community, and a teacher who cares. Find the toolbox at toolbox.caraleah.com. T-O-O-L-B-O-X dot K-A-R-A-L-E-A-H dot com. Mm, Thank you so
1: much, Sasha. My pleasure. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, this is a conversation with Caralia and Sasha, as you can see, is my guest this time around. She's a yogini and leads amazing ecstatic dance. I had the great pleasure of dropping into one a couple of weeks ago. And she trains ecstatic dance leaders as well. She is a mother. And does lots of other awesome things as well, which I'm sure some of those we'll touch on. She lives in New Plymouth, right? That's where you are now, is New Plymouth? Yeah, Yeah. living in New Plymouth, in
1: Namutu, yeah.
0: Uh, So Sasha and I have been having a lot of conversations ourselves over the last three or four weeks. Sometimes it's like multiple voice messages back and forth. Uh, A little background, just so you know the context for what's led to this conversation. Uh, About three or four weeks ago, Machu Tehuki invited me to co-facilitate on a retreat because his co-facilitator had decided to step back. And that was Sasha. And there's a whole lot of things that unfolded as a result of that. And I've ended up not co-facilitating with Machu on that particular retreat. Um, things came up around the student teacher or the participant facilitator relationship and just deeper understandings around that which lead to a wider conversation around ethics in the spiritual community the conscious community so I said to Sasha I'm like you know what we really got to take this conversation to the people and here we are so welcome Sasha (laughs)
1: Thank you. It's beautiful to actually be here and having this conversation finally. Yeah, as you said, we've had lots of voice messages back and forward. And I'm sure, like me, you've had conversations with the wider community. It's been really interesting Talking to the wider community and not just the spiritual community, not just the yoga community, which I also uh, am from and through and lead trainings and that as well, but also the therapeutic community and the music community. It's really, it's actually been a really beautiful unfolding of a greater connection and a deeper conversation. And that's my hope for today that we can keep diving in, diving into the conversation. Mm. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that intersection, right, between, say, the yoga community, spiritual community, therapeutic community, the performance or the music community, and they all overlap in some ways, but then they're all coming from slightly different perspectives. But at the heart is relationship dynamics, power dynamics, and ethics, which is what we're here to talk
1: about, really. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh, and so. Me one- oh, yeah. You go. No, no, go. You go. (laughs) (laughs) You go. No, you go. (laughs) What I was going to say is, yeah, one of my from this unfolding um, and and coming to this place was witnessing some, you know, the comments on Facebook and the threads and, yeah, really realising and understanding the lack of understanding and education in our community around ethics and around the power dynamics and you know that's an interest of mine of diving into why that's why that is there but that was really insightful to me because it's something that As I said, I'm a yoga teacher, I come really through the spiritual part, I actually come from a dance background, but then the yoga has, I've been teaching for 20 years and run teacher trainings, and so ethics is a a part of the container, you have to have ethical policies in place to run your trainings, codes of conduct, we have to teach it, and it's been really enlightening for me, because I was always a bit like with Yoga Alliance, I was like, meh, and now I'm like, I'm really grateful. (laughs) (laughs) that this is so clear and that there's a governing body that you know makes it so clear and that we have to teach it and speak to and yeah and how do we um have a discussion and how do we bring these thoughts and theories because at the end of the day I'm not saying they're right I'm just saying how do we bring this more into the public conversation
0: Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. because even in the yoga community like I came through dance and then yoga as well. And I don't recall on my yoga teacher training. I mean, I don't remember what we covered. It was like 12 years ago now. Um, but I don't recall us looking at teacher student dynamics so much. I don't recall us looking at ethics on that training. I've self-educated around it. Like I, you know, Donna Fari's book on teaching and the relationship was was huge. And part of why I started to self-educate was because in the early 20, like around 2012, I think it was a lot of things started to happen in the yoga community with Bikram, with John Friend, later with Bhatabi Joyce, with Iyengar, all, all of these, you know, some really serious abuses that were happening, not just, um, because there's power abuse and there's sexual abuse and there's overlaps there as well. Mm. Um, so I do feel like the yoga community as a result of that has become a lot more aware. There's been a lot more discussions. Mm-hmm. But the yoga community and those who teach and facilitate in the yoga community, then we've got the spiritual community, like whatever that means, and people who haven't necessarily gone through trainings there who, who have no understanding. Like you said in that conversation, it started to become quite aware that, like, A lot of people who are facilitating don't even recognise there is a power dynamic between participants and facilitators. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So having been in the yoga community for so long, and like you said, Yoga Alliance has ethics and guidelines, etc. Do you reckon the yoga community's got it sorted, and we could use that as a?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. That's why I said it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And, um, you know, yes, exactly. I think there's more awareness in the yoga world because there's all been so many transgressions of the teacher, student, and I would almost say the guru student. And there's definitely that outdated model that I personally really feel needs to go. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so these transgressions have continued to happen. And I think. You know, when I did my, when I entered into the yoga world, you know, like I've been practicing for 25 years and Yoga Alliance didn't exist when I started teaching. I did a diploma in yoga teacher training. It was like two years and it was partly online and it was partly in person and we would do like monthly um, re- monthly assessments and assignments that we would send into our teacher. So it was a really beautiful set in the classical, a much more classical pathway, but that was where I came from. And so Yoga Alliance, I don't actually know how long it's been around for, but it is newer as far as the yoga world goes. Um And it's interesting, I think, definitely since Yoga Alliance has been there, more of these transgressions have come to light. And maybe that, and I'm just thinking this now, maybe that is because there is a governing body that has spoken to ethics and there's been a pathway that's been created for people to feel safe enough and come forward and talk about this. But I Mm -hmm. definitely don't believe that we've got it all sorted at all. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's interesting because we talk about this also the spiritual world and whatever pathways and I'm interested and I don't know so I'd, I'd love to hear from people that maybe are coming through the breathwork pathways and the cacao ceremony pathways if they have um, governing bodies if they have ethical guidelines that are taught student dynamic that are taught you know I'd be interested to hear that because I don't actually know I've asked a few people but I'd love to educate myself and do a little bit more research around that and then of course we have um the neo-tantra world intersecting as well so there's so many layers here yeah. we have the neo-tantra that um and through the ista I, i'm not sure if all neo-tantra um teachings are the same but i know through the ista world they're very clear that it's okay to sleep with your students so I can see why there's so many varied views and what's right and what's wrong and, you know, does it matter? Um, and I can see on one hand where it's coming from, like the way they talk about it is that, you know, the, the blanket rule of don't sleep with your student is clearly not working and we can see that in the yoga world, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at, Rod, look at Rod Stryker. The guy has really clear ethics. He had an ethics board. And then he had a year-long emotional relationship with a student that accumulated in physical intimacy. Yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. So it's kind of like it's that thing of like if we just push it into the shadow and just say a blanket no, then I you know that doesn't work. But I all but but I personally feel that it's okay to sleep with your students. I I, I think there's just two many layers of conditioning and I think it's, I think it has to be something that's done very, very mindfully and very, very consciously if it does unfold. I'm definitely not a, I'm not a person that is a no, never, ever, it's just never okay because I think a post you put up the other day, there was a woman yoga teacher that said she met her husband in her yoga class, you know, and I was just talking to my neighbor today and she said she was at a training and she found out that the facilitator on that ended up dating and she was a much younger woman. Um, but they're together three years later and they got a baby and they're married.
0: Mm. Yeah. Rodney Yee, another good example of someone who began dating his student who became his wife and his co-facilitator and they've been together for however long. Yeah. So, yeah. um There's a, there's a comment here from Kim saying, you know, I appreciate the link to yoga Alliance, but I don't think they actually govern much because there's not much follow up from them. So that's a really good point, right? You can have the guidance or the the pathway or the ethics, but if no one's paying attention or, and how do you pay attention? How do you assess things as such? Um, Mm -hmm. So that's one comment there.
1: Okay. I would agree, and that's why I've always been a bit like that about Yoga Alliance because that's been my experience. But after this conversation, I'm kind of like, at least it's something. <laughs> it's yeah. better than nothing. But I totally agree, Kim. I I don't see them following up. Yeah. Mm. I know they don't so, check. Like, I put in my curriculum, and they never check. Like, once you pass, they never check anything. I could be put in my curriculum and then teach whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> It's a rubber stamping thing, right?
0: Yeah. There's a great question here from AJ saying, what do you want to see more of from the men in this community and what is needed from the male practitioners in this field?
1: Oh, that is such a good question. Yeah. Yeah, that is such a good question. Mm. Yeah. I think... I think, yeah, what, what do we want to see from the males in this field? Mm, mm. I think, and I don't know if this is, and you've spoken to this, I don't know if it's necessarily just a male issue, but it does tend to show up in, like, the way um, power dynamics show up in, the, in men is, is different to women right, so I think there's there's that acknowledgement as well, I so I think, and I'm saying that because I think as facilitators, I think I would love to see us all understanding that we are in a power dynamic when we're in the teacher-student relationship, and I feel like that's just across the board, and you know, as a teacher, I feel that, I know that, and I also know when I get to know um, say a student's been through one of my trainings and then they start to assist me and they get to know me more personally I feel that power dynamic start to dissolve like so firstly just the acknowledgement that it's there and how we respect that and I think that's just generally across the board I think for the for men and that's a really great question I think and this is another layer is the part of the reason why the power dynamic is there because of the patriarchal conditioning it's like this invisible ocean that we're all swimming in and so there's these dynamics that what happens is we're conditioned from a very young and the patriarchy is affects all of us men and women and you know um Women and girls are not taught to say no. We're not conditioned to kind of stand in our power, say no, and be more fierce. And men, from a, boys from a young age, you know, I mean, I could go on and on and on about that, but I'm keeping it direct to answer this question. Um, and men or boys from a young age are not taught to feel, you know, harden up, especially in New Zealand, like harden up, just get on with it. So what I see is there's this disconnect. So you know, in these dynamics, it's it's easy to go, "Oh, woman, you just need to work on your boundaries." But there's so many layers around that because of our cultural collective conditioning. And for men, because they they have been so conditioned in a certain way, I think there's this not really potentially feeling feeling as much as they could the impact of their actions.
0: Mm. Hmm. Hmm.
1: And I know yeah. that's probably not a direct. The thing is, is it's, I think it's such a difficult question. It's like, well, what do we do? I think you know, it's like there's so many there's so many layers to it. But I think if we just start all acknowledging that there is there is this deep cultural conditioning from the patriarchy that generally just gives men more power. They're conditioned to take up space more. They don't apologize as much. The bigger, the stronger. They probably men have you know, some men have, but, you know, one in three women in New Zealand are being sexually abused, you know? Yeah. So a greater understanding of these things of like, as a facilitator, when you go into these spaces, this is what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so important to understand that when abuse happens, it's not just a one-time event and it's done and dusted. That mm. abuse literally rewires the nervous system, the defensive mechanisms, the way that someone receives information from and responds to their environment, Mm -hmm.
1: right?
0: And so one thing that you're saying there, so there's a comment saying, does it even need to be gender specific? And no, I mean, from the perspective of, we're talking about power. In essence, we're talking about people with power, how do they hold that power in a responsible way? And also, as Sasha just laid out, because of conditioning, the way that men and women wield power is often quite different. Women, when they wield power, when they're doing it unconsciously, it it tends to be like emotional manipulation criticism, vindictiveness, like really tearing down someone on an emotional level as such. Power, and we're talking too about the difference here between power over, when people are operating from power over rather than centred in power Mm -hmm. and responding to what's unfolding. So I think understanding conditioning and how things are gender-specific is really important Mm. Understanding the, like you just said, Sasha, that the abuse history of the general population is really important. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, there was one other thing that I wanted to highlight that you mentioned. Oh, so when you when you spoke about how men and and we're generalizing here, absolutely generalizing, but men mm. in general are conditioned not to feel, so therefore it can be more challenging for them to feel the impact of their actions. Mm. So something in that as well is. My sense is that because that inability to feel, then they're, they're not as tuned into what's actually happening on the more subtle layers of communication, on the energetic layers. So mm. as a facilitator and a participant, what the man, if the man is a facilitator and what he's sensing and responding to, he's not necessarily picking up on that subtle stuff and responding mm. to that per se. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm. I'd also like to add, going back to AJ's question of, you know, what do we want to see from men? I'd also like to ask, what, what do men need from us so that they feel safer to join the conversation, to speak up of their own experiences, you know? Because I think the only way that we're going to move to a healthier dynamic that we all want to see, because at the end of the day, we all, re- as facilitators, we all reflect on one another. You know, it's like, how do we create these spaces? Because you know, I, 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 although I've highlighted these things, I really want to avoid shaming men and shaming, yeah. you know, we all have the mes- masculine energy within us. It's just like men have the feminine energy. So it's kind of like, you know, what is it that you need from us to feel safe, to speak up more so that we have a deeper understanding of where you're coming from as well. That's a question mm. um, that doesn't need to be answered, but I just want to put that on the other
0: I feel like that's so important. And when I invited Mathieu in essence to do an inter-conversation with me, that's what I was so aware of that it was, it just felt so important to me to be able to hold that space with unconditional love, with orientation to truth. So he felt safe Mm. to share really vulnerable things to the best of his ability in that Mm. moment. Um, And if we want men to step up or step forward, we want anybody to step up or step forward. From my perspective, it just feels so important that we are caring and we're compassionate and we're loving. And, like, the teachings in Tantra are that anyone is doing the best they can in this moment based on their level of conditioning and their level of awareness. So even someone who is, you know, abusing someone else and that moment's actually doing the best they can and if they turn around and go I want to sort my shit out tearing them down is not going to support that process but being loving and holding them to account will support that Um, but what I would love to see from men in our community I would love to see men holding each other to account I would love to see men noticing if someone's got a dodgy relationship to power and having a heart man like a man-to-man, heart-to-heart conversation about it. So it's not just because I sometimes feel like it's the woman's job to call this shit out. I'm like, why the f- where are the men here? Um why why is someone else not why are the men not, you know, going do, do, do? and you know, I've heard men bitch about other men, but you know, behind their back as such. And I do. I am aware of some men in our community who have done exactly that. They've gone to men and said, "Hey, your behaviour is not okay, and it's harming people. And we would really love to see you operate in a different way." That's what I want to see more of.
1: Yeah, I would totally one hundred percent agree on that. Like, I think the um, like if any of you followed the the post that Matthew put and all the comments after it was such a beautiful analogy or just not even an analogy. It was a direct insight to where we are in our human conditioning. And that was one thing that I definitely saw a lack of as men lovingly calling other men to account, you know, and, and I also see that in the greater community. So I would totally Mm. agree with you there because it feels sometimes a little bit like, uh, especially for us, I guess, you know, women that have been, um, in the community for a long time, we're a little bit older, we're a little bit wiser, and we kind of end up in these roles of, like, the Carly role, <laughs> like, this is not okay, no. <laughs> We've yeah. more comfortable with our noise
0: <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, I have been getting on the phone to some men and going, can you do this? I've been asking directly and saying, can mm-hmm. you please talk to this person, you know, yeah. be- about their behaviour? So, <laughs> Because... That's what I would love to see. All right, we got another comment here from Benjamin saying, I think boundaries and when people don't feel comfortable with having boundaries is when a lot of problems start. But how do you encourage people to have boundaries in the moment? What are your thoughts on boundaries
1: there, Sasha? Yeah, yeah, again... Uh, there's so many layers to uh, to boundaries, you know, like one of the things that I teach in my women's retreats that I run down South is um, what did you learn about saying no, you know, and this is again, this is for men and for women, but you know, right. So, so no is like your, your base, one of your basic boundaries. Right. And it's like, what have, what were you taught when you, it's one of the first words that we say is no. And often, you know in our in our direct family unit in the wider community as a as a small as a toddler and as a child it's not okay to say no to people in power it's like don't you say no to me you know like what were we taught about saying no and that's part of the reason why we find it's all very well to say you need to get clearer on your boundaries but if you haven't gone back and really looked at the ways that we were taught to say no and how to say no and how to set boundaries it leads to so many things. I, you know, I go through, went through this in my own process of like, if I say no, what are all of these people going to think about me? And am I going to let people down? You know, it's not just the no and the boundary, and this is my boundary and my values. It's all of the conditioning that we have on top of that. So I think under, yeah, it's, like understanding boundaries what are they what is our conditioning around it what is what happens when we say no and you know that pattern of wanting to say no and then apologizing that's another thing it's like no but i'm sorry da, 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 da. like how comfortable are we just saying it's a no without needing to over-explain or to set boundaries. And there's always, whether it's men or women, you know, especially in a training container or a workshop container, you know, it's all very well. We can, I know even as a facilitator, we can set up these um, containers where we say everything is invitational, you can say no, but then you're in the moment and the rest of the group is doing it and it's so easy to get swayed by that. I think we're taught from such a young age to give our power away, you know, to teachers, to doctors outside of ourselves. So often from an embodiment perspective, we don't even know what no is in our body. And Mm. then if we've got the extra layer of trauma on top of that, it's really difficult You know, and it can can work in both ways with trauma where, you know, trauma is triggered because of a past experience and it's actually stopping us from unfurling into a safe container and finding spaces to be able to rewire our nervous system. So, Mm -hmm. again, it's not a straightforward answer, (laughs) but it doesn't mean that we can't learn about it and inquire into it, but there's just many layers to it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, often people don't recognize or realize that a lot of this stuff is unconscious, mm-hmm. that the conditioning in the body is so strong mm-hmm. that people, like, there's not a recognition. So when it comes to boundaries, mm. the human animal, my understanding from my direct experience and studies, the human animal will take the choice that leads to safety.
1: Yeah.
0: Regardless of whether it's a yes or a no, the human animal will go, it's safer to say yes. It's safer to fawn. It's safer to tend and befriend, right, which is in the nervous system you've got fight, flight, freeze, tend and befriend or fawn. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we're hardwired for safety. Yeah. So that's going to take precedence over any intellectual understanding of boundaries until the nervous system is literally rewired through work. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, yeah, so I think um, going back to these questions, I think one of the biggest things we can do as facilitators is um, inform ourselves around trauma and do some education around that. That's something like out of these conversations, what I would love to see is people understanding ethics and the power dynamics more and you know, facilitators doing some, it doesn't need to be, um, oops, sorry. Um, (laughs) it doesn't need to be, you know, you don't necessarily need to do a whole, like, two, three year diploma in it, but I think some kind of basic understanding, and there are facilitators out there that are running, like, I know a woman, Amanda Hanna, who runs Soma Psych, that I, my guest facilitator, she does a 300 hour, uh, trauma-informed teacher training, but she also does a tw- just a 20-hour online that's coming up at the end of August, and I'm happy to put some links to that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, I think because it's so nuanced and because, as we've talked about, there's so many layers, it's like, okay, well, what can we do on practical levels? And I think upskilling ourselves as facilitators on trauma is one of those keys, because then we learn to understand as a facilitator Whether what we're seeing is is a true no, like, oh, that's a no for them. Like, they're just not wanting to go there, and I'm going to accept that and help support them into doing what they need to do to listen to themselves at the moment or to resource themselves, or this is just actually their resistance, you know. And it's important that we know that as facilitators and are able to feel what their boundary is. Like is this just a pattern condition of just no, or I'm having a trauma response, which are two very different things, an, an emotional response release and a trauma response are two very different things how we deal with them in a space. And um, yeah, or am I am I as a facilitator just going to gently guide them through that resistance? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they can understand a deeper layer of themselves. Yeah.
0: And that comes back again. So just want to talk about the way that we learn things. There's intellectual understanding and learning, but then there's embodied understanding and learning. <clears throat> and that sense of being able to respond, that Someone might, like you said, someone might say no, but it's a resistance no that can be worked with skillfully. Someone might say yes, but it's an actual no. And to be able to sense that, right, and go, oh, I'm hearing you say yes, but I'm feeling you say no, right? Yeah. And as, yeah. as a facilitator, I want to honor the felt body sense that the person is transmitting, but I need to know what that is. I need to be able to feel it, right? Yeah. Um, so let's look at a few specifics here. Um, Kim's coming on saying the ethics framework would ideally speak to the boundaries relating to the power dynamics. So in a very practical sense, one thing I've heard you talk about over the last few weeks, Sasha, is the idea of creating some kind of ethical guidelines for facilitators and sending it out to festivals so that anyone who is facilitating on a festival, that everyone's on the same page with ethical guidelines. Can you
1: speak into, into that? Mm, sure. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah, so that's one of my things that's come out of this. And just yesterday, actually, I was looking over my own ethical guidelines and codes of conduct that I've got within my yoga school. And and the, the guidelines that I do have speak very clearly to that. Like it is, I think, you know, as I said, there's so many nuances and I really don't believe in a full blanket, no. But I think as we get, say, in this example of festivals, Although then, you know, I've been thinking about that more too and it's got its challenges. Like we sometimes, like Ecstatic Dance at NZ Spirit, I was, I don't know how many hundreds of people were there. Oh, <laughs> there were a lot.
0: Oh my God, I saw the photo and I'm how just would like... I
1: know whether, how would I know whether they were at my dance or not? And that's why I think in those situations, it's actually just more straightforward to have a blanket no. And if we have some ethical guidelines that are written and reviewed by a few of us, um, and then sent out to festival organisers because, in my experience, and I haven't taught at heaps. I've actually only been teaching at festivals for the last two, three years. It's not like I've done many of them, but I've done a, you know, I've done a few, and um, I haven't seen, in my experience, anywhere when you get accepted as a facilitator that these are the guidelines. And I think it would be just a really great way to begin to educate facilitators around there's always a power dynamic this is the ethical conduct that we expect from you in this place that you know that it's just it's a no it is a power dynamic the student teacher relationship it it just is a power dynamic and that's a lot of it as I said is cultural conditioning as well so we're so Mm -hmm. conditioned to give our power away so easily and so readily and you know I'm a I'm a woman who's done a lot of work herself and I know even myself when I met my teacher Tara Judell I was like oh my god I could feel myself putting her on this pedestal I was aware enough to know that I was doing it but I was still doing it and that's Mm -hmm. woman to woman you know so it's like these are it's just like naming it that this is the reality of what is there and creating policies for people to read through and to sign. I mean, in an ideal world, in my ideal world, it would actually be through a Zoom call with all the facilitators. I think that would, A, be a beautiful way to bring facilitators together to get on the same page, same intention of what we want to create, the feeling in these festivals, but also a level of education And I'm also aware of all the nuances of. Well, there might be hundreds of people at your class, and what about the musicians? So then we go, well, the one thing for the facilitators. What about the musicians? You know, Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) or the healers? The healers working in the healing
1: zone. Uh, Yeah, so that's been interesting. As I've been having conversations with healers working in the healing zone, and similar stories of. them maybe seeing other healers that they didn't feel were holding up, you know, the best ethics and ethical guidelines and hearing that from people that have been to see healers in these spaces. So I think, I think they're really just, we need to raise more awareness and more education just across the board around this. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And, I mean, and the man, conversation's definitely been started.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and for me as well, like what I've noticed is, Like, I teach this stuff on my trainings, but I was always just kind of like, isn't this common sense? Meh, you know, like, I'll teach it because I think it's important, but I didn't ever spend a whole lot of time on it, and now I'm like, oh, we're going to spend more time on this, and we're really going to dive into embodied boundaries and what that feels like. I mean, we do do, I mean, I teach embodiment, so we do a lot of embodiment anyway, but this extra layer of that, so yeah mm. yeah just yeah I took it for granted that people understood this I really did yeah yeah but nah <laughs> <laughs> it's a place that can we say yeah but, nah? <laughs> yeah but
0: nah yeah when you look at my conversation with Machu, and he genuinely he yeah. appeared to you know what he was saying was he didn't understand some of these dynamics it hadn't occurred to him
1: yeah and i know i mean we've been him and i've been having this conversation probably for a couple of years um but i think the the layers and the nuances of it maybe yeah. had not fully landed for him yeah yeah
0: and i think that's important to to sort of point out you know when transgressions were being brought up with him it wasn't that he was necessarily sleeping with participants that he'd been on his workshops mm-hmm. it was more of um not finesse, it's the wrong word. It was more subtle than that, but it was still sort of tr- that. that's As soon as there's a power dynamic, yeah. shit's going down. Um, and when I feel into this, what I keep coming back to is our relationship as human beings to power,
1: mm, yes. right?
0: Like when when I imagine, like what would it feel like to be part of a community of people where everyone was in their power? then these conversations actually become redundant. When everyone's simply in power, redundant. So in some ways, it's not even about the ethics. It's not even about the guidelines. It's about embodied sense of being in power. What does it mean to be in power? What does it mean to not be in power? To recognize Mm -hmm. the strategies that people use to try and feel powerful as Mm -hmm. such. Mm -hmm. um kim says ethical guidelines may not change some people's behavior but it enables all the avenues to know what's expected and it helps people speak up and be supported
1: yeah i think that's a key right if like if this education's happening and then like we said before like what do we want to see from men men calling other men to account I think you know just within our community if that education's there then we can all hold one another accountable lovingly it's like hey remember that ethical guidelines that we signed I'm you know I'm a little bit concerned about what I'm seeing yeah at, you know at this time you know we can all like say like Kim says that education can be there and then we can all come on board and hold one another to account around it and begin to my hope is build a new culture around this and then the next level as you say would be this understanding this empowerment you know from this place mm. within and I think that has a I think we have a wee way to go there you know it's definitely yeah, um, def- you know this I, I don't even like to call myself a teacher anymore like You know, I call myself a space holder, a facilitator, because even the word teacher, it kind of puts me in this position. It's like, I just happen to know quite a lot about this topic because I've dedicated a lot of time and practice to it. But that does not mean I have, you know, that I know everything at all, you know, but it's interesting how you know the questions people have asked me, they're like, I've got this injury, what do you think I should do about that? I'm like, I think you should go see a physio. <laughs> 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 I can be yeah, right? To <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. really interesting what shows up, you know, like this. Just they think because you're A yoga teacher who has some kind of spiritual understanding then then you know a whole lot more than what you actually do like say scope of practice i think that's another really important thing that i would like to see more understanding around what is our scope Mm -hmm. of practice what are we actually educated to deliver
0: yeah it's a big one scope of practice um i did a mind body certificate a mind-body therapy certificate and one of the big things that we covered like we covered all of these different approaches and learned different approaches to therapy etc and one of the things covered was what's your scope of practice what are you trained and certified and have the experiential um, understanding to deliver um, and like we said at the beginning there's a real overlap here between say spiritual therapeutic Um, academic there's like an intersection I'm curious to know Sasha how would you define the difference between therapeutic interventions and
1: spiritual
0: interventions
1: yeah (laughs) yes yes that's another really good question right is like the the I think this understanding that you know spirituality is spirituality and therapy is therapy for a start and they're quite different in the way that they work but I think also this nevertheless they're both potent and powerful and transformational containers that we can put ourselves in yeah Mm. um so say for me with my dance training in particular like it's a 10-day ecstatic dance training and um it's it's intense, and I've had like this will be the fourth year that we've run this, so we've run it a number of times. We've had like nearly a hundred students through it, and you know the feedback is is that it's you know it's a really intense container. They delay It's it's a spiritual, shamanic soul container. That's what it is. And, and I've had this feedback of people come out into the world and they're kind of like, whoa, how do I fit in? Because there's so much ch- internal change that then they go out into the world and they're like, how do I fit in? So my learning, and it's definitely been my learning, is to understand even though I speak about you may need therapy after this to help integrate and here's some therapists, I'm understanding I need to speak to that even more and even leading into the training of like you're really going to need time to integrate you know, and speak about from past students' experiences of what they've talked about and their challenges with it and just speak to that more and more. But that Mm. understanding that there is a difference. And I think, um, you know, I think in there's a difference and there's a difference in understanding that and like you say our scope of practice and i think it's really important to understand if you're a therapist you come from that you have a really strong code of ethics and you will generally have a body behind you but it doesn't you know and i think there's this what i'm seeing what i'm seeing in some of the comments is that there then can be this hierarchy of like I've got this, I come from more of an academic background, so I know, and there's a lot of benefit to therapy, I've done a lot of therapy, I have regular supervision as a facilitator, that's something else I would like to see more of, um, facilitators getting their own supervision. But then I don't think we can negate the way that someone who comes from a deep spiritual practice that has a regular meditation practice and years of that, building their awareness, building their um, awareness to the subtlety of energy and shift and change, building their awareness around their embodiment, I think that is as of equal value. So. I really I feel like what I'd like to see is a greater instead of kind of I'm seeing a little bit of a conversation around one's better than the other what I'd like to see is a conversation of like how do we understand the gifts that we are both offering and how do we um, support one another and how do we deepen the conversation here as well as being clear of what our scope of practice is like you wouldn't expect your therapist unless they've done a yoga teacher training to start teaching you yoga In the session, here's the, you know, here's the therapy. And by the way, here, I think you should do these downward dogs and da-da-da-da-da-da-da or embodiment practice, you know, if they haven't done a lot of embodiment practices themselves. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's spoken. So do,
0: could you define the diff- like the difference then? Because, you it is dealing with much of the same, you know, it's transformation of self as such. It's dealing with the mental, emotional, it's dealing with the nervous system, it's dealing with trauma resolution quite often. I'm just curious to know if, because I got a few different ideas on it. On what do you think is the difference between the spiritual transformation approach and the therapeutic transformation approach?
1: Lord, that's a good question. (laughs) Yeah. Can I offer something then
0: while you contemplate?
1: Yeah, please do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, my sense is that the the major difference is the is the way that reality itself is perceived. So from Mm -hmm. a spiritual perspective, what we are is awareness or consciousness. Mm -hmm. And within that awareness or consciousness arises the contents, which are thoughts, feelings, defense mechanisms, nervous system responses, trauma, right? But what we are is awareness. Mm -hmm. And so that's a particular lens. Mm -hmm. And I know when I work with people, mostly what I'm doing is supporting them to have the capacity and the willingness to be with what's arising. Mm-hmm. and that's in it to just to just be with what's there right whereas um therapy tends to have a different kind of lens where you know the the sense of what we are as awareness is just not there at all yeah. what a person is is a person is seen as i you know the identity of the thoughts and the feelings and the history and the, the story of me as such mm-hmm. so my feeling is that's one of the major differences between the approaches is that In the therapeutic model, and I'm generalizing here because some therapeutic models, like Hakomi, for example, um, they do have a different lens. But the therapeutic model tends to think a person is their thoughts, feelings, their history, their stories, their trauma. That's what they are. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the spiritual transformative model, what a person is is awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You see?
1: Yeah. I would agree, and that's like when you ask us like, Wow, because there's so many different therapies as well, so yeah, that's <laughs> just it. So like this is a generalization spiritual traditions as well, and you and I come from a similar spiritual path of you know teaching awareness, tantra embodiment, so we're similar, but someone say in classical Hatha might say something different again, so yeah. Yeah, there's so is many different layers to it and from my understanding often therapy is much more cognitive it's much more talk style of like we're, we're talking through this and I think not always it depends on the therapist that you're going to see right but often it's cognitive and it's from here up and it's talking about experiences and processing them and being heard and that is a really important and really valuable process and in my experience, um, through dance and through, cause my yoga teacher training is embodied flow. So it's embodiment first and foremost, it's embodiment. Um, and, and what I've noticed is that students will come and they'll be like, and even in my women's retreats, people will be like, I've done therapy on this but then they go into their body, and then they're like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> it's like the body keeps the score, I guess this is this interweaving that we see of this, it's a relatively new field of trauma-informed awareness, is because they're yeah. understanding the body piece more, which is where, as yoginis, as, you know, Shakti advocates, embodiment hunts, you know, that's where we're coming from more, is like, this body keeps the score, it keeps a record of everything, and then when you go in there, things are going to come up and out. I think also, generally, therapy is one-on-one, so I don't do one-on-ones, I do group, and that's why I'm very aware of, like, you might need to go see somebody one-on-one to integrate after this, because this is a group experience of, as you said, bringing awareness to self, like that awareness of that we are everything and it is us. And I think, you know, from my teaching perspective is also broadening into this, yeah, we are everything and it is us and broadening the capacity to be able to see, as Rumi would say, we're the universe in ecstatic motion, you know, why are you playing so small? And so on my trainings, that's definitely one of my through lines is to, like, you know, we've had this human experience and we need to acknowledge that. And I think that's what therapy does so well. And then we are a soul mm. <laughs> and we are more than that. <laughs> mm.
0: yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there I, is so much intersection happening now as well. Like what you just said, um, Dr. Garbo Mate's work. Oh my goodness. When I watched the documentary and read the book, I was like, oh, well, wow. I feel like he's speaking to the work I'm doing with people, but he's laying it out in a different kind of way. And it was so refreshing to see that that intersection starting to happen of the of the semantics of it all. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's the field that we're going to see growing more and more and more. And, again, you know, my hope is that there will be more, uh, you know there'll be some bodies governing that, and you know these ethical guidelines and codes of conduct as this field grows, you know, whatever pathway yeah. you're moving into it from. Mm-hmm.
0: Um one thing I noticed too is that you know as teachers or as facilitators, I've been really aware that I can only ever lead students as far as I have gone. Yes <laughs> and right? And totally. I teach that all the time. <laughs> Yeah, and then so looking at some facilitators, they might have learned breath work, for example, but if they haven't done a lot of inner work, then their ability to hold and respond to people that they're leading in breath work will be far more limited. Um, Yeah, and I think that is where there is – I don't want to use the word danger – Um, but I'm aware, you know, at festivals, people are leading very powerful group processes that can totally bring up all kinds of shit that the facilitator doesn't necessarily have the capacity or the time to, to hold. Um, yeah,
1: I think that's a biggie, right? It's a biggie. And I actually think as you, as you're speaking to that, I'm realizing uh, mainly because I've been looking for it myself I'm always you know con- doing continuing education there's a lot of um, there's a lot of trainings around how to you know hold one-on-one space and to understand trauma from a one-on-one viewpoint um, but there's actually not a lot of trainings around how to hold safely and well group containers like there's just mm. not. You know, it's like I don't necessarily want to go and do a three-year diploma that's specifically, it might touch on group work, but it's actually specifically designed for one-on-one work. Mm. And there's actually, this—that's I'm really seeing that missing. Like there's not a lot of like how do we apply all of these things we're talking about to the group container. And like you say, and so then it shows up in festivals where breath work, yeah, it's powerful, right? Freaking powerful, Yeah. It's really powerful, and, you know, we've sort of, I've seen these um, discussions be had of, like, is there spaces, like, whose responsibility is it? Is it the facilitator? Is it the festival organisers to create spaces if people have had a big experience and they need to process it more? Like, where do they go? So this yeah. is something as a community that we need to speak more to. Um mm-hmm. It's like if people are having experiences, like how many assistants should you have in the space, you know, when you're holding these deep containers? And, you know, and there's so many different layers. Like, I think this would be, you know, a different, again, differentiating, differentiating, excuse me, between therapeutic and more soul work. And often, you know, in soul work or spirit work, it's done in group containers, And there's the energetics, you know, like what is the whole energy that you're creating? How do you work with that? How do you set up a safe space and a safe field? Because you're literally taking them through processes that open their fields up so massively. Are we grounding people, settling them, regulating their nervous systems at the end? Are we giving them advice if you're feeling activated? Where do you go to from there? You know, and as I'm saying this, I'm like, you know, I definitely could have paid more attention to that after leading an ecstatic dance at NC Spirit, you know. It was like I didn't speak to that of, like, and if you've got stuff coming up. And that's the other thing of, like, you've just, you know, for me personally, I just held a big space to hundreds of people do, you know, my energy spent (laughs) in that moment. You know, so like this is why it's much easier in a train when you're in train when you're running trainings because you have assistants and it's very clear. It's like if stuff's if you're still needing to process stuff at lunchtime, then that's what the assistants are there for because I've just taught for whatever three hours straight and I need energetically, I need a break because I can't hold anybody anymore, you know? Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: I think what I'd like to see at festivals is a space that is personed, not manned, but personed, um, that basically is like the blowout room. Maybe. Yeah. and so all facilitators know all, all participants know that if you've gone through a workshop and you're feeling a little bit shaky in any shape, way shape or form you go to the blowout room and you are held and supported and whatever you need is responded to and I think that kind of space really needs to be happening it, you know it's like kind of a little bit like first aid but it's so much more than that because the people that hold that space need to be next level at what they're doing
1: yeah, and I was just going to say, it's like, and it would be amazing if the people that were holding that space were trained therapists, that's exactly what we're talking about, you know, it's like, the deep spirit work and these containers, and then, yes, sometimes people need to be held by a therapist to help them integrate what they've experienced, and it's like, how do we weave these two together, yeah. and then have conversations, you know, like, yeah facilitators going to the therapist and going, oh, what happened with that participant? You know, in confidentiality. I mean, that's the other thing, confidentiality. (laughs) Yeah. 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 We're getting a
0: lot of yeses, amazing, and love hearts and claps on this piece. So I think this is something we definitely have to propose to the festival organisers. And I think you're right. I think the people holding that space need to be a combination of those who can work with the energetic field and those who are therapists. I think you need both. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean ideally therapists that can do can do that would be amazing but he I knows. think both is necessary
1: yeah I mean I, I you you would think that the type of therapist that would be attracted to coming to a festival would have a like the therapist friends that I know have a really good balance of both you know they're very. Yeah. They have their own spiritual practice, so they have that infuses their practice. But, you know, it's the same as, like, right, you have your first aid tent. You're assuming, of course, that there's going to be people that are trained in first aid that are at that tent. So it would be the same with this tent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be like, me manning the first aid tent, it was like, I can put a plaster on it, but <laughs> that's about my limit. <laughs>
0: So I'm just yeah. looking at my notes here to see. If we've covered a lot of ground already. Um, yeah. Getting some big guesses on the integration. Okay, let me just feel and see if there's anything else that's required to ask. I do, I do want to ask a little bit about your own personal experience, Sasha, in terms of making that decision to step back from facilitating with Matu and then watching the fallout. Um, because you were in both a professional and a personal relationship with him, mm. how did you feel as a woman watching what happened and being a part of it? Must- mm. yeah
1: <laughs> you know that yes. people are
0: going to be wanting me to ask that question,
1: <laughs> of course, of course, and i'm you know I'm happy to speak to it for sure ah yeah um is there a specific question or do you just want me to speak to how the experience was for me
0: yeah I think just reflecting you know there's that decision to step back Mm. how hard was it to make that what went into making that decision to step back from co-facilitating
1: yeah it was I really, you know and this is so for me, I have, a, I have a daily practice, I've been practicing meditation for years, embodiment for years, and to still process this and really find my truth was definitely a difficult process. It was so interesting watching all of the, you know, all of the different conditionings that would come up around not wanting to disappoint the students, like what are the students going to think? What is mana going to think, you know, on a professional business level? Like, what are they going to think? What is – how is Machu going to take this? If I did this to him, how would I feel about this? Just all of the different layers – So I'd also like to add, not only do I have, you know, a regular practice, meditation, embodiment, I also have a really strong council of sisters that are all very wise. And, you know, so that reference as well. And brothers, I have some really beautiful brother energy in my life that I, you know, these kind of things of like, I'll sit with her and then I'll be like, hmm, I'll go to this person and and ask them for advice. So it was really... It was such a deep process of like what feels like my truth. And like you say, there was the the personal experience, although we had stepped back from having an intimate connection for a while before this decision. So they were sitting with that as well. Like, can I let this, you know, the personal connection, I don't want that impacting this decision because I, I know it's going to, you know, it's a challenging decision to make. There was also my life path as a woman of, you know what what was, and some of you might have read my post that I wrote about you know the process that I went through, and I think one of the one of the sort of like working through it all, one of the aha moments because I was I was really like how, like if I say no how you know this part of us that wants to know how it's all going to work out and how can I look after everybody and is nobody is anybody going to get pissed off with me Like, yeah <laughs> there's still that deep part of us that want to be liked it's like I don't know if that ever goes away and I, I think that's a good thing right because otherwise we just walk around being assholes you
0: know <laughs> well not about that <laughs> but yeah, but listening what? to you, that's that's what I'm picking up is a sense of like you you kind of knew what you needed to do, is mm-hmm. what I'm sensing. But yeah. you were concerned about how is it going to impact all of these people. Yeah, and I, yeah. And I wonder if that is more of a feminine thing to worry about all of the, 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 rather than to just go, "This is what I need to do, and it's done." Fuck you yeah. all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean not quite but just but almost (laughs) like just a sense of trust trusting that mana would get it trusting that machi would get it and if he didn't that was his shit trusting that the students would get it and if they didn't that that was their stuff right
1: i Um, think it's uh yeah definitely like that feminine you know we nurture and we create connection that's part of what we do like we build communities and we nurture it's it's like it's inbuilt into us so there's definitely that aspect and then there's also this part of the feminine that we, you know, the feminine is comfortable in the unknown, right? The masculine likes to know, it likes to be linear, it likes to be rational, it likes to have all the figures and facts and we very much live in a world like that. Um, Whereas the feminine is more comfortable with the unknown and the dissolving and the dissolution, you know, we could say from those pure aspects of feminine and masculine And one of the things that helped me create my clarity is um, I separated from a 22-year marriage like nearly two years ago. And and I really had to step into the not knowing. Like, I don't know how this is gonna work out. I don't know how I'm gonna manage. I just don't know. And it built a really strong resilience and trust in myself. And my mantra literally at that time was just keep putting one foot in front of the other. (laughs) and it was interesting that was almost like the the moment of truth is like I'd been deliberating over and talking to people and had and had women coming and talking to me about their experiences so that that was the other thing you know and 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 wanting to be seen a I feel really blessed that the woman trusted to come and talk to me like even though they knew I was working with them they still trusted me to come and talk to me so I, I really honour the woman for that and I'm really grateful for that. So there was a big part of me that's, I can't just ig- ignore that, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially when I teach all of these things and I teach, also teach listening to my body. So it was two moments of truth that kind of made me go, I just have to say no Is a, you know, I teach listening to my body and my I know my body's saying no and my head is trying to figure it all out. I know my head is trying to, make sure everybody else is okay and I'm trying to figure out how it's going to unravel and what, what I can do about it and then the part of me that just went I've let go of way harder things and it's worked out this is actually a small thing in the big scheme of things I mean I didn't expect it to come out so publicly that was not my intention that was not my desire <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I was like, oh, and I re- was really feeling for Machu. I was like, whoa, this is intense. This is an intense unfolding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was not my intention at all, you know. And and it was funny because even you know in our conversations, when you decided not to step up, I was like, oh, okay, now really, like the retreat's really not going ahead. All right. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, this there's that small part of me, like, it would, would have been just easier if it just went ahead, but the deeper knowing that it's like, that is not for the best for this to go ahead yeah. at yeah. the moment.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, when Matthew asked me, I just sort of said, yes, I didn't know why you'd stepped back at that point in time. Mm-hmm. But I also had it in me. I was like, oh, I need to talk to Sasha. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, as you know, I reached out and I spoke to you. Yeah. And then was like, okay, what needs and same thing. It's like, okay, what needs to happen next? And I was which is when I said to Machu, look, we have to name and acknowledge everything that's in the field. Mm. Right? Mm. That needs to happen. Mm. Um, there's just one thing I wanna um speak to about the interview that I did with Machu. So I was quite nervous in that interview. Cause I really want, like I said, I really wanted to hold that unconditional love space and also mm-hmm. accountability and truth. And in the past, I had a tendency toward people pleasing and accommodating and I have been, I've tended to be intimidated by in particular men in power. So I was aware of all that going in. Yeah. Um, and there was, I think it was toward the end of the interview like I recorded the interview and afterwards I felt so exposed and like, holy moly, do I really want to publish this? This is really full on. This is just going to explode. Mm-hmm. And then when I reflected back over the interview, I was like, Oh shit. That was something I shouldn't have said. And so it, it was real and really interesting, you know, cause it was such a long interview as well, but it was part of the interview and I couldn't like, I don't tend to edit things out. I tend to let things flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did and it got published and all the things happened. And then about a week <laughs> or so later, I got an email from a woman saying, you know, I enjoyed your interview. This was good and that was great. She goes, but when you said this, oh. when, it's not okay what you said. And, da, 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 da. and she, you know, she just called me out and I'll get to what it was in a moment. And I just responded to her and I said, yeah, you're totally right. I fucked up. That was not okay, you know. And I think this is part of this power dynamics thing is when we're willing to own up to and just name and say, yeah, you're right, that wasn't cool. I fucked up in that moment Mm. and I'm aware of it. So the piece I'm referring to in the interview is when I said to Matu, I said something along the lines of I suggested to him that he not engage with women who aren't fully in their power. And, of course, you know, it just was not a good thing to say Mm. um, because of what it implied in terms of the women he had been engaged with and just so many nuances. It was clumsy, it was inaccurate, and it would have been potentially caused harm to Mm. the women. So that's one thing that I wanted to just say is that navigating this territory is difficult. Stepping up and speaking up is challenging and we will mess up. All of us will mess up. And Mm. I feel like it's really important for me as I'm just going to speak for my own purpose for me to just acknowledge when I do things or say things that are damaging to other people. So that's Mm. a piece in that interview that I wish I hadn't said that felt unskillful and may have caused harm.
1: Mm. Um, Mm. Yeah. Thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the reality is we're all going to, we're all making mistakes, right? And there is no perfect. And, you know, I've certainly been looking over my own self and my own offerings and, you know, how can I, all that, but there, you know, I think it's definitely, I would hope that it's all brought us into a place of self-reflection self-reflection you know to really sort of go are we what you know what feels truthful for us in our body are we living up to that sometimes yes sometimes no like you say being humble enough just to admit that of like oh yeah I I fucked up there yeah I mean you know if we could see everybody on the call it's like hands up who's ever fucked up in their life (laughs) <laughs> yeah. but it, it,
0: it's, it is so powerful to just acknowledge it. And I think, you know, just as we come toward the end of the interview, cause I'm aware of time, we talk about people in power and what's needed. You just use that word humble. And I, I feel like I've had so many lessons in humbleness in the last few years and it was so needed. Um, when we're not identified with the power, when we're not identified with the position when we're not attached to the power and attached to the position and therefore defending it or justifying it or rationalizing it, that's when what I notice for me, it's easier for me to say, oh, that was not okay. That was this happening. And I've seen in my own containers on the occasion when I have fucked up with power, the moment I acknowledge it within the container, the learnings and the sigh of relief and the openings that unfold around it, yeah,
1: definitely yeah. yeah yeah and as you say like as a woman it's going to probably show up in different ways than than as a man you know with the power dynamic for sure you know sometimes you know my own for my own self and my containers you know I'll be like I will check in with my assistants you know, I'm like was that too strong was I like too direct was I like <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes I'll be like, yeah, that was a bit strong, <laughs> you yeah. know or not or not that's the other feminine you know it's as much as i think the shadow for the feminine is kind of to not be you know clear enough and to kind of like we say pull back and you know go so and then we go underneath and then it can come up in weird ways you know Mm. manipulating and things like that you know so watching our own shadow is a question i've been asking You know, for a good couple of years, as I witnessed more and more of these male yoga teachers coming, their transgressions coming out, I was like, okay, this is good. And I'd love to see more female teachers in, you know, leading, but we also need to be mindful that our feminine shadow is going to come out. And what is that? And how is that going to play out? And how do we lovingly call one another to account for that?
0: Yeah. Such a good point. Okay, final thing I just want to touch on, Sasha. Um, So Sasha and I have been in conversation around creating some kind of form. Um, As somebody will be aware, uh, there are a group of people who have created a form for those who have had abusive or manipulative situations in the ISTA trainings to submit their experience. So Sasha and I are looking at, well, we've actually created a form, but now we're like, well, when people submit their manipulative or power abuse or or sexual abuse experience in our spiritual community here in New Zealand, what then happens, right? Because it's one thing to have a form, but it's really important to hold the people afterwards. Um, what are your thoughts on that at the moment, Sasha, in terms of what we need to do? What because let's call in some resources, let's call in some support wow. here in terms of what would you love to see happen in terms of a pathway for people to report dodgy dealings
1: yeah yeah and that's something as you know that's come up through the process you know it's kind of been a step-by-step process of like oh okay we need to get clear ethical guidelines into our community and you you know, let's start with the festivals, it's our place to start. But then this realisation of like, oh, if we've got ethical guidelines, then we also need to have a channel for people to be able to lay complaints and we need a third-party body to be able to take care of that because you can't have the person that the complaint or the organisation that the complaint is against dealing with it because that is not ethical. (laughs) and then that that is called a body and they take a lot of time money and resources to set up so you know I think that's what we've come to it's like we've got this you know great form and it's very empathetic and when I read through it it was like actually my um, feedback form around if there's ethical guidelines cross could be much more gentle that's what I learned off your form that you had crafted and But then, yeah, how do we, we need either other people stepping up or we need some funding, you know, if this is, because it's all very well having these conversations, which are amazing, and, you know, gathering information of what to do, but then it comes to a point where it's like, A, who's going to do it? Who wants to spend the time? Whoever does spend the time deserves to get paid, Does anyone have the energy that that's kind of like, yes, this is really my jam. This is what I want to create, you know, and an ethical board would be amazing across the spiritual community that we could become members of, you know, I think that would be Mm -hmm. incredible. Someone with the right skill set to do that.
0: I totally agree. If there's anyone out there who's really good at writing funding applications and knows how to get funding from different bodies within New Zealand, maybe get in touch. Um, I would potentially love to see the major consciousness festivals here in New Zealand commit some funding because it would be for their benefit to have such channels set up for sure. Um, Yeah, I think you just laid it out really beautifully, Sasha. So my, my desire is that this conversation sparks not just more conversations and not just more awareness of the issues but actual concrete Mm. actions. Yeah, yeah, let's see some shit go down in a good way.
1: Mm, Definitely. It's like, yeah, taking that next step for sure. And and like I said, I you know, clear on for me personally and in my business of steps that I'm going to take and it would be great to see steps in – in the bigger community getting taken. And I'm also aware that I'm I'm just clear. I'm not that person. I do not have a whole lot of extra time and energy. I'm happy to help and support, but I do not have the hours that would need to go into something like this. Because Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: and that's why it needs funding. It needs to be funded. It's a job. It needs to be paid. Um I know I said last thing, but I just heard you say I'm really clear on the steps I need to take next in my business. Can you just Name those steps for other, because other people might be like, oh, I should do that too. Or I could get rid of the
1: shoulds. I could do that too.
0: Yeah. What are you doing? What are your steps?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So as I said, like for my 200 hour, we have ethical guidelines and codes of conduct. And um, so I was going over those policies yesterday. And as I said, with the, the, the complaint form, I'm going to rewrite that. So it feels more inviting. I'm also at a loss though, even with that, like with my yoga teacher trainings, obviously they could file that off to Yoga Alliance, whether they actually do anything Mm -hmm. about that. That's why it would be good. I would sign up. If anyone wants to create this, I would sign up because, (laughs) you know, I need a governing body to help me in case someone's got complaints, you know, about a training that I'm running or about me. It helps me, right? Right. You know, you would hope it didn't get to that level, that they felt they could talk to you or an assistant, but, you know, it might. So one of the things is rewording that form. One of the things is getting my ethical guidelines on my website so that people know that, just getting a lot clearer with my policies. Um, Although we spend... I'm going to spend more time on it in my teacher training of like really not taking it for granted that people know it's like, Oh, people don't really get this the power dynamic. Um, and working teaching more, I teach you teaching more around boundaries and embodied boundaries and diving into that on my 200 hour and my dance training as well. And, um, again, like we, probably even less on the dance training if i gone into ethics. So it's like, okay, I really need to go into that more because although it's a dance training, not a yoga training, um, it still needs to be really clear. You're still holding space. And in fact, in my experience, it's often more powerful space than asana. Um, Yeah, so the the other steps, getting it on my website, rewriting and clarifying some of my policies, um, spending more time thinking about how I'm really going to teach these from an embodied perspective, yeah um continuing that education like i mentioned like amanda hun is doing um a 200 a 20 hour trauma informed like getting that out more um helping support that to help educate the community yeah and if anyone wants to create a body i'm there i'm signing up
0: (laughs) epic epic sasha Thank you so much for your conversation Um, Just your time And energy and vibration And for what you bring and give To this community
1: Mm, Mm. Thank you Yeah, thank you for taking the time And thank you, I just want to acknowledge Thank you for your patience So, um, Some of you might not know that um, Carole actually reached out to me Not long after that interview with Machu And asked me to speak to it And I was in a really tender, vulnerable place I was just like, I can't I felt very emotional, I felt like I could feel the whole collective talking about it (laughs) and I really was having to do a lot of self-care, a lot of nurturing, so I just want to thank you for your patience with me and just going of course until I could come to a place where I felt in a really, I think this is something to finish off with is back in my power because I think that's something that we think it's it, it's not like you get it and that and that's it you never lose it again I think it comes and goes you know and it's like we have these as from a tantric perspective everything is happening for our own awakening right and so mm-hmm. it was kind of like I <laughs> 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 And then it took me a while to kind of integrate all of the pieces and embody it and kind of come back to my centre and another layer and sense of empowerment. So it's not that I lost what I had. It was just a deeper understanding and a layer of that that came on board. So, yeah, I want to thank you for your patience and all your conversations and your time and your energy and all you give to the community. And it's really heartening for me to see, you know, other powerful woman facilitators in our community stepping up and holding beautiful space so thank you thank you it's been Mm. it's been a gift spending so much time in conversation with you
0: (laughs) it totally has i love the way it cemented our relationship thank you matu for that gift (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) totally
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh awesome so this was a conversation with Caralia there's many more if you haven't yet watched the Machu one please do there's a couple of others I've done recently with very powerful women as well Claire Alley and Jacqueline Richards thank you for everyone who watched thank you for all the amazing comments and questions made. are you ready to realize the self to resolve your shirt to rejoice in daily life Join Karelia's community via her online platform, The Toolbox. Get ready for a paradigm shift in how you experience yourself and your reality. The Toolbox, where you'll find everything you need for the spiritual path, view teachings, practices, community, and a teacher who cares. Find The Toolbox at toolbox.karelia.com. T- O-O-L-B-O-X dot K-A-R-A-L-E-A-H dot com. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Karalia and trust that you enjoyed that nuanced deep dive into spirituality, sexuality, power and awakening. If you love my take on the spiritual path and you're looking for more insights like this, then make sure you subscribe and like. You can also check out my website, karalia.com, That's K-A-R-A-L-E-A-H.com. And subscribe to my weekly newsletter.